The Nation Station, Manx Radio. Faster Mai, good afternoon and welcome to Perspective on Manx Radio. Dolan Mercer here, lingering around until about two o'clock. And William King joins me in the studio this week. We had a slight change of format last week where we plotted a timeline of the debate around reform to abortion legislation on the Isle of Man over the past three years or so. That programme is available to listen to as a podcast on the Manx Radio website, as are all of our episodes from over the weeks. This week, though, if you're listening live, we'd love you to get involved once more, sending thoughts on anything you hear. You can text us on 166177, you can email studio at manxradio.com, and you can use the hashtag MRPerspective on social media. We've got another retrospective theme for you this time, following a week of commemoration on the Isle of Man across the British Isles and further afield. Ceremonies have been held to mark the 75th anniversary of one of the most significant dates in the modern era of the Western world. Tuesday the 6th of June 1944 saw what is widely considered to be the largest combined land, air and seaborne invasion in history. Codenamed Operation Neptune and often referred to as D-Day, it was the Allied invasion of Normandy in Operation Overlord during World War II, Unleashed with the words, let's go, more than 4,000 Allied troops died during the operation to liberate France. For the first half of this programme until one o'clock, we've taken to the archives to bring you Manx Radio's coverage of the 50th anniversary of D-Day in June 1994. Roger Watterson spoke to Manx men who were there in 1944 and listened to their recollections of the landings on the Normandy beaches, something it's very difficult to do nowadays, of course. Written and presented by Roger Watterson, edited and produced by Charles Webster, here's some extracts from Sunday Opinion on the 5th of June 1994. D-Day had arrived. The liberation of Europe had begun. At 15 minutes past midnight, paratroopers of the American 101st and 82nd Airborne Divisions went into action, and 50 minutes later, and 50 miles to the north, men of Britain's 6th Airborne Division parachuted onto Pegasus Bridge. At dawn, thousands of Allied troops swept ashore on the Normandy coast to seize the beachheads from the Germans and prepare the way for the armies of the free world. Operation Overlord, the long-awaited mammoth effort to free Europe from Hitler's grip, was finally taking place. It mobilised 7,000 ships, 11,000 aircraft and eventually 3 million fighting men and what Eisenhower called the Great Crusade. The BBC announced the invasion like this. London calling in the home, overseas and European services of the BBC and through United Nations Radio Mediterranean. And this is John Snag speaking. Supreme Headquarters, Allied Expeditionary Force, have just issued communique number one, and in a few seconds I will read it to you. Under the command of General Eisenhower, Allied naval forces, supported by strong air forces, began landing Allied armies this morning on the northern coast of France. Later that day, General Eisenhower broadcast to occupied Europe. Ici, long. Les Français parlent aux Français. People of Western Europe. A landing was made this morning on the coast of France by troops of the Allied Expeditionary Force. This landing is part of a concerted United Nations plan for the liberation of Europe, made in conjunction with our great Russian allies. 
I have this message for all of you. Although the initial assault may not have been made in your own country, the hour of your liberation is approaching. Throughout the Second World War, the men and the ships of the Isle of Man Steam Packet Company were in action in the Mediterranean, at Dunkirk, and at the Normandy invasion. Bill Lister from Port Erin was on the Lady of Man on D-Day. I joined the Lady of Man early in 1942, and uh, we got ready gradually for D-Day. And in the summer of 1943, we fin finished up in Liverpool, having our decks reinforced and, and landing craft put on them. At the end of the summer, we moved down to the Portland Command, uh, and uh, we were there for about uh, oh, several months before and after Christmas when basically training troops, taking them out at night, landing in very suitable territory around about towards Pool, and we would go at night time, in the middle of the night, and they were trying out seasick pills on them and all that lot, you see. Well, then finally we uh, moved around to Cow's Isle of Wight, and uh, that was about two months before D-Day. It's pretty obvious. Uh, the amazing thing to me is that the Germans let them get away with us so much. Why the Germans didn't flatten that big armada off to Southampton? Where, where were the Luftwaffe? <laughs> Mystery. We loaded troops at Southampton on the fourth, uh, I think it was. We were just ready to sail when there was a, a message really from Mon well Montgomery and Eisenhower, a joint message telling us what we did, what was expected of us. On the Sunday, he ordered that they would go on the Monday night. On the eve of this great adventure, I send my best wishes to every soldier in the Allied team. To us is given the honor of striking a blow for freedom which will live in history. And in the better days that lie ahead, men will speak with pride of our doings. We have a great and a righteous cause. Let us pray that the Lord, mighty in battle, will go forth with our armies, and that his special providence will aid us in the struggle. I want every soldier to know that I have complete confidence in the successful outcome of the operations that we are now about to begin. With stout hearts and with enthusiasm for the contest, let us go forward to victory. We were due there at about five o'clock in the morning. The seas, the swell was a big cross swell, you see, and the landing craft were getting blown sideways and they were going all out of getting out of formation. It was quite a tangle and slots were sunk. We stayed there and got, we went ashore eventually, eventually, and we only lost one crew member. We stayed there till about three o'clock in the afternoon. To give you some idea, the, uh, you were deafened with the noise. Behind us there was a war spite, a relic of the First World War, a big 15-inch gun ship, and she was really pounding the gun emplacements ashore. And, and we had two cruisers, the Belfast and the Diadem, two big, fine big cruisers, and they really pasted. 
And uh, so we, we didn't know. You'd been through Dunkirk and you never had a blessed plane in sight of your own and nothing but German shells. You would appreciate it. We didn't know we were born, almost. I'm saying that in a relative sort of way, you know. The Ben McCree was another steam packet ship at D-Day. It was serving as a troop ship carrying landing craft and troops to Normandy under the command of Captain Ratcliffe Duggan. At the same time, his son Ian Duggan was serving on board a corvette of the Royal Navy. I served on an anti-submarine corvette. Well, we mustered in the Irish Channel. We picked up a convoy uh, to go down to the D-Day landings. Uh, I think 36 ships in all we had, uh, mostly military transport and that sort of thing. And we left uh, D-Day morning to move down to the, the beaches and got there uh, just before daylight on the actual D-Day morning. And then we hove to and, and moved away uh, lay off like you know and the transports went in other than that we had two skirmishes with e-boats en route like you know and that's the only action we actually seen uh, as far as we were concerned like you know well then the escorts dispersed at daylight you know when we looked around like the uh, the number of ships that were actually there was absolutely fantastic it was a mag a absolutely a mag magnificent sight it was it's indescribable, really. There's ships everywhere, hundreds of ships, an aircraft, overhead our bombers, like, and all that sort of thing. We, uh, we then, after a short while, we moved away again and went back to our... Th this time we went back to Falmouth and picked up another convoy back to the beaches. And we kept this shuttle service up, oh, for, I would imagine, four weeks, four to five weeks afterwards, that's all we were doing, like backwards and forwards with the uh, the convoys from the through the channel. The father was, was uh, on the, at D-Day the same morning as we were, but they were in before us. The Ben was in before us. The father was Captain Ratliff Duggan, DSC, and he took command of the Ben McCree uh, after the Dunkirk evacuation. He lost, uh, the Mona's Queen was the, his original ship, that was lost at Dunkirk, as you know. And after that he took command of the Ben, and he was, he was with the Ben, trooping right up to uh, when we get to, uh, to the D-Day. And they were ordered, they were in the Western Approaches actually, uh, and they were ordered to Southampton uh, to join the, uh, what they termed in, uh, as uh, Operation Comet. That was the... Uh, where all the crew and the members joining uh, th this operation were obliged to agree to to uh, accept the conditions and take part in the liberation of Europe. Well, her part in the D-Day landings at Normandy was to land, to land American assault craft troops at one of the five beachheads. They were at Utah Beachhead. Her task was to put the American Rangers ashore at a certain time, at a certain point. And, and during the early hours of during the early hours of D-Day morning, their task was to the uh, American Rangers, the assault troops. Their task was to scale the cliffs at the on the uh, beachhead and silence the German batteries which were overhead, like you know. 
it was, it was, it was successful, but they, they did, the Americans, when they landed, they were faced with a, a bit of hassle because the cliffs had been bombed by our own aircraft uh, prior to the uh, actual landing of the troops, like, you know, and it, it made the, the, the uh, effort like a little bit more hazardous than what they anticipated it would be. But it was carried out successfully, and uh, as far as we can gather through records, the German batteries were actually silenced, and that was the objective. But to be part of the, uh, a magnificent and unbelievable operation on the D-Day landings will live in our memories for all time. The 15th Isle of Man Light Anti-Aircraft Regiment had been training since February 1944, and on the night of May the 24th, the Code Cornelius put the regiment on six hours' notice to proceed to the marshalling area in preparation for embarkation. Commanding the battery movements were Major J.B. Mulcreast of the 1st Battery, Major T.W.K. in the 41st, and Major H.S. Balls, the 42nd, known as Bolo. One troop from each battery, with 1st Battery headquarters, embarked on D-Day, June the 6th, and the batteries completed the embarkation operation on June the 7th and the 8th. The first group to arrive was on the Normandy beaches on D-Day plus three. The regiment's advance party, led by Major Henry Kelly, later to become colonel, who was the second in command, with five other officers of the regiment, landed D-Day plus one to make the arrangements for the arrival of the batteries. I was stationed under the West Ham Stadium in the, east, in the east of London. Although we didn't know it, it was top secret. That was about six days before D-Day. And on D-Day, we'd moved out from West Ham to and embarked in a ship in the Medway and sailed in a convoy um, on D-Day down the channel, the ships traveling um, in line astern um, two at a time. It was there, I think, that with the heavy guns from Calais, the ship next to us was struck, set on fire, and um, eventually had to beach when we were just off Folkestone. We were struck by a shell. Um, it either went through us or stuck in us somewhere, but failed to explode, so we were rather lucky. I wondered at the time whether the D-Day uh, landing would be anything like Salerno, but it was um, a very uneventful affair. The advance party disembarked the following day, D plus one. We went ashore uh, without, without incident. None of our um, waterproofed vehicles were casualties. Once ashore, we um, rapidly got rid of our waterproofing on the, on the vehicles and moved inland about a mile. By that time we got a bridgehead there, Aramanches Beach, Gold Beach must have been four or five um, miles deep and there was um, no, no hostile activity on, on the beach itself. Our objectives were Bayer on our right and Caen on the left, and we were nearly got Bayer the first day, but um, Caen was a, 
a bit of um, an obstacle for um, for several weeks. The job of the advance party was to reconnoitre with the divisional advance party, find out the assembly areas for the regiment, and then meet them as the various batteries landed and guide them up to the assemble areas. With the tremendous air superiority um, arranged for D-Day, there was virtually nothing for the regiment to do in its usual anti-aircraft role. Our greatest um, triumphs as ACAC gunners came in the um, desert. We were rather a raw regiment when we left the island in 39, but by f 1944, D-Day, we were really professional soldiers and uh, considered ourselves, if not the best, equal to, to the best uh, anti-aircraft um, regiments um, in the army. But the D-Day, I think there were two things that struck me. First, when we um, sailed into the beachhead areas, um, I marveled at the amount of shipping that covered the sea almost as far in every direction as you could see. And I w wondered at the precise planning that must have gone in to bring each of the ships to its own exact locality, the right spot on the beach for the landing of their men and their guns. That was one thing. At that time, when we landed, the regiment as a whole was stronger than it had ever been before or since, because the powers that be were so uncertain of our reception, um, they required the light anti-aircraft guns to be put ashore fairly quickly in case of, um, of enemy air attack. The, the powers that be had us strengthened we had a, a platoon of um, machine guns and um, about 30 extra infantry attached to us, or it might have been more, and also three Crusader tanks. There'd be about um, nearly 900 chaps from the Isle of Man. On a lighter note, uh, the packages of food, American packages of food with which we were supplied for the trip over and for the first few weeks in Normandy, um, comprising all sorts of items that we would have regarded even at home as, um, as luxuries. Colonel Henry Kelly of the Banks Regiment. The paper the official military observer in September 1944 said of the Manx Regiment, this ACAC Regiment have a record of overseas service and constant action, perhaps unique in the annals of anti-aircraft arm of the Royal Artillery.
That was Roger Watterson there presenting Sunday Opinion on the 5th of June 1994. As Manx Radio, the Isle of Man, the British Isles and further afield marked 50 years since the Normandy landings of D-Day in 1944. Welcome back, you're listening to Perspective on Manx Radio. For those listening live, we'd love you to get involved. You can text us on 166-177. You can email studio at manxradio.com. You can use the hashtag MRPerspective on social media and just tell us your thoughts on anything you hear. Time now for a second instalment of Sunday Opinion from June 1994, as Roger Watterson spoke to some Manx men who served in the British forces on the Normandy landings in 1944. Major Henry Qualtro, Bill Harrison of Douglas, Norman Moss of Andreas and Terry Skelly of Douglas. We were going to do it because we knew we were going to clear the beach obstacles. That was the thing. As the, as the tide went out and we came back in on the next side, we were clearing the obstacles that were left. And we'd been practicing ob- obstacles and we were fed up playing with telemines. Uh, I don't know, we played, must have played on about three or four months. And that would, we knew we were certainly going to do it. And obviously it was going to be a sloping beach. But then we didn't know all that much about France. I'd never been to France before in my life. What would amaze me was the architecture. It's a, it's a funny little thing, but all the beach houses along the front where we landed on Sword Beach yeah. were like baby chateaux. They had great um, turrets and very That's steep right. to... Mm. And it, it looked uh, almost <laughs> like... Seaside or so. Yes. See all these yeah, it was almost like something out of mm. uh, Walt Disney. I think the other thing was the fact that we were all confined to these camps for a couple of weeks before we were, or a couple of few days before we went yeah. across. And we weren't allowed to write home. Or we, if we wrote, all the letters were just shoved in an old yeah. um, yeah. biscuit tin and they were going to be posted yeah. two days after we yeah. went. And all we were told is that we were going ashore on these tanks and to meet up at the top end of the beach because there was, we had three companies and some of them were on a landing, land, the larger type landing ship and we were on the LCTs with so many tanks and as I say it was pretty chaotic for quite a few hours. We, we were briefed in the concentration camp on Bassett Common with the most marvellous models which had been made from air photographs and there were also defence overprints showing where they reckoned every machine gun position was and uh, anti-tank ditch and where there were minefields. Mm. And uh, we uh, really knew exactly what we were supposed to do. I mean, if everybody had been wiped out in the unit except one man, he would have known what the job of the commando was, which was to get up and join up with the Essex Airborne. Our morale was amazingly high. We felt sorry for the Germans. We, we weren't afraid. We were so uh, trained so hard and for so long that we thought, really, we'd only just got to stroll up the road to Berlin. The only thing I, I can say, we came in and uh, after the 151 Brigade with 50 Div, and all I can remember, there was so much noise there was so much dunk and there was so much stuff flying about that you didn't really think of much else. No, did no time. It was a, no. it was a mass. I've never seen it. Well, it was a mass of equipment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Everything was there. And when we got to the beach, we were quite a lot later. It would be six hours after the first assault. And there was so much junk on it, you could hardly get through it here on the beach. I was a, I was a coxswain on the London Craft Assault. First in, first dropped the uh, East Yorkshire's. First wave in on gold. Yeah, that'd be... that was pretty. It was pretty quiet. Ten minutes later, the next wave came in. We had ten minutes to to get in, drop them, and out again, and back back to the ship, pick another load up, and come in again. That was when the troubles was was really on. The mm. second the second time we come in, oh. it was just as he says, just one hell of a mess. After this, after the second wave, we went back to the mothership. The, the um, Empire Battleaxe. She was a Liberty ship built specially for, um, specially for the job, troop carrying, and uh, 20 landing craft. The build-up is going well. I spent some hours on the beaches this morning watching men, food, ammunition and supplies come streaming in. It's a combined operation between Navy, Army and Merchant Navy. The effort is enormous. The results, in some cases, staggering. Heading for the beach, line astern, right, and yeah. all you could see was paper bags. Flipping <laughs> blue, flipping everywhere. And a lot of people were sick, yeah. But then when they, got, when they got to within a certain distance, the, the, the ones at the front just slowed up and they all come into line and they just hit the beach all in line. The poor lads are as sick as dogs. Landing craft were not the most stable boats you could imagine. They they rocked. They were cows of things to be yeah. in. We had the 13th, 18th Hussars on our beach, and I think their first lot who went in with the with four commando on uh, uh, just after H hour, they uh, lost, I think, practically all their tanks because the LCTs. It was too choppy, really, for the, yeah. these things. The LCTs <coughs> let them down about 100 yards offshore, and they all went down to the bottom, got yeah. sunk. DD rate of loss was high, but Very I think high. that was mainly the weather conditions. Weather. If we'd have had a lovely, Some calm day. landing yeah. day, I think more of the DDs would have been in. Yeah. A lot actually went in too yeah. steep before they could float. Yeah, that's right. So it was 40 to 50 percent lost. Oh, at least. Often. Them. At uh, least. 13th, 18th, I think, yeah, lost. They lost, I think. 20, 22 out of their 38, was it? Yeah, I think so. 22 or 30. Or we the were lucky. We had one which wandered with us yeah. up and gave us covering fire on the cup. Uh, when you're going on to this on D Day, don't forget there was 11 more months of, of D Day every day. I was uh, amazed, really, because um, the drop on the, uh, uh, the glider landing on the evening of D-Day um, and the parachute drop on the evening of D-Day, I had a grandstand view of it, and it was absolutely marvellous. Yeah. It's the finest sight I've ever seen in my life yeah. that day. And uh, as the I say, sky was black with, black with aircraft. aircraft and gliders. Yeah, yeah. And I think the, the and the war stopped literally. The war, we yeah, were, we I was were, just going to say the we, same thing. We were having a battle with some uh, people from Twelfth SS Panzer, and the war stopped whilst we all stood the beach. That, 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 everything went quiet on the beach when those happened. And as he said, 
The sky was absolutely black, and all you could hear was the lad steering. Yeah, we all going, you know, it was really. I was going backwards and forwards until about half past four in the afternoon. And then, unfortunately, I got a, a hole in the port side, just above the waterline. So we had to beach it, stop there the night. A really miserable night that was, and all. I had to dig a hole in the beach and <laughs> cover it over with planks and, and, and what's name. Then we, we, we fixed her up, like, you know, uh, fixed her up, and then uh, back at sea the next day. On many training exercises that one was on, one always came in, landed at the right place at the right time. Yep. I don't think anybody in D Day landed. No. A, at the right place, and B, at the right the time. time. <laughs> and the thing that shook me, um, we came in a thing called Landing Craft Infantry Small, which had about 100 troops on, and they had two silly little planks out the front, yeah. which they yeah. went down yeah. on the beach, and you were supposed to run down these. The trouble is that with the swell coming behind and the kedges not um, holding properly, these craft tended to broach too and uh, none of these ramps worked properly, so everybody was jumping down the water or falling. I actually went head first mm. into the water, and I was actually underwater, and I was carrying about 80, 80 pounds of equipment, and I was railing around underwater, and uh, I was stopped by a body of a bloke with East Yorkshire flashes and a third div thing, and he was wedged against one of these dragon-type uh, beach obstacles. And I pulled myself up on him and on the beach obstacle and started towards the shore. I'd only gone about uh, halfway when a tarpaulin whipped round my legs, which was loose, and I went down the ogin again. Luckily, there was a corporal coming behind me, saw me go, grabbed the back of my rucksack and pulled me up. Then we got up to the beach, and the thing what amazed me was the chaos there, because there were LCAs burning, there were LCTs burning, there were beach armoured recovery vehicles, there were some of the funny tanks, you know, the DD tanks. Yeah, the funnies, AVREs. Burning. And a thing which distressed me more than anything one expects in the army to see soldiers lying around dead was seeing the sailors rolling around in the surf. Dead sailors, they look in their bell bottoms and things, they looked uh, as if they shouldn't yeah. be there. I, the idea of us going in was to follow in, and after the tide had gone, come back in on the new tide to take the, or take the mines or the bottles or the shells off the beach obstacles yeah. and to clear the tracks, get the access tracks off the beach. Well, it was so difficult to get any stuff in through that it was really, they were ferrying in troops and 50 devs artillery only started to come in with the second wave. The ordinary guns, the 25 pounders, yeah. they had tank support before that. But on the landing as well, we, the morale was so high because we had so much stuff. Yes. When you Consider what the Navy were doing out behind us as we were going in on the uh, Warspite, the Belfast, a lot they were thumping in the heavy stuff. That was wonderful to hear a, an express train go over your head as you're going in. <laughs> the naval fire was extremely good. I actually went in on 50 div tanks, so many sappers on each one mm -hmm. off the ship, and there were bodies floating around everywhere, well, some blown in two. Hell of a mess, and as you all say, it was. A, 
completely chaotic, uh, which was caused by the bad weather and the storms. Everything was set to plan, but mm. we were a day late. We were three and a half days on our ship swanning around, and three quarters of the blokes were half dead when they went, got off it. Yeah. It was a fairly rough tide. It got worse the next day, actually. Yeah. Well, we were, we were actually uh, waiting then. We were dug in, and the first meal I had of the compo rations, I remember behind the hedgerow at Ver Do you remember Versamer? Versamer, yeah, that's, that's further well, over to the yeah, east. Yeah, but the sign where we, we were on King Sector of Gold Beach, yeah. and the, I can see it to this day, when we got up to the hedgerow, there was like tracks, sandy tracks to Versamer. Yeah. And that was completely bombed out, a small village. Yeah. Well, I remember a few of us getting down behind this hedge and, you know, the ready heating soup they yeah. had, sitting, sitting alongside a heap of blankets, and we uh, turned a couple of blankets over. The bodies of Dorsets and Hampshire infantry, they got, yeah. they got quite a pounding there. 231 Brigade, yeah. Yeah. But the Beachmasters uh, were the great fellows. Yes. And they were nearly all Navy men, Naval the Beachmasters. Yeah. And they were great fellows. They'd yeah. tell you where to go. Often it was get back in the bloody water, you know, you see it, but it didn't matter. They, yeah, the beach they sorted the beaches out. We had a black called Commander uh, Colin Maud on our beach, and he was a uh, bloke with two DSAs and two DSCs. And, and Too old for service at sea, so yeah. they sent him as a beachmaster. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, <laughs> he was a bit like sort of uh, Henry VIII in build. With a they were. Great well, they were great fellows. He'd be one of them, those fellows that said, there's only two people allowed on this beach, the dead and the dying. Yeah. Get the hell out of it. <laughs> I talked to the principal beachmaster on one sector, a tall, bearded naval lieutenant commander. Our conversation was punctuated by the orders he gave to craft, shouted through a loud hailer. Keep to wind at there, 1047. Keep clear of the duck entrance. Next moment, he was dictating signals to be flashed by lamp along the beach. He was answering army officers, queries about the tide and obstructions. But he was right on top of the job. His men, Royal Naval Commandos, some of them, were busy clearing wrecked landing craft and marking with red flags new traffic lanes through the shallows. And up and down those lanes, almost as though on conveyor belts, the regular steady stream of ducks was moving, hundreds of them. They went out empty from the shore, changed from wheel drive to propeller a few yards out, and made tracks, or rather wakes, for the merchantmen lying two or three miles out to sea. Down the next door lane, they were coming in shore, reversing the process, and driving their piled cargoes of sugar crates, tires, petrol, shells, up the coast road to the depots. We were very lucky that uh, although all along the beach there were so-called minefields with Achtung Minen yeah. written on them. Yeah. In fact, I walked through with a crowd of soldiers I'd picked up through one of these and I didn't know it was a minefield until I started climbing over the fence yeah. the other side. Well, and so I presumed it was a dummy because nobody... Uh, you Either that or you can be lucky enough to walk through a minefield because the minefields are laid at a certain distance so that you didn't get... I wouldn't do it as a hobby. No, no, it's not that. I've not been through a minefield. A lot of us went through the minefields opposite long after they'd been cleared that day. And yet we went back two weeks later to start clearing them. And I lost about eight men on them. 
just just clear them. Yeah, they were, they were oh, they, they, they were mind yeah, yeah. I think God was with us that day. Well, you <laughs> can. Well, but often enough, the infantry ran through a minefield and got away with it. The other thing we found was that when we got across the road behind the dunes and the yeah. houses and started advancing inland, inland up towards the uh, um, airborne, six airborne up at uh, Benneville, it was very marshy and there were bombs yeah. and shells landing and because it was so marshy and soft they were going down exploding and just chucking out a little yeah. sort of part and they were causing very few casualties and it was amazing really that um, as comparatively safe it was and I was looking back and three Junkers 88s came uh, in and got through to the beach and bombed uh, the beaches and strafed them and one of them got shot down and I was rather pleased to see the other two get away because they were so brave but if I'd been on the beaches, I don't mm. think I'd have been so generous. There were some, but there were very few and far between. Yeah. We got fighters usually coming over. Around about dusk, they would try and get through and give us a little rattle, but not all at once. You must have seen uh, locals at Bayeux on the second day when it was taken. I remember having my first drink of Calvados there. Oh, I that was always well in. And also, there were a lot of the houses that had been wrecked they had these great barrels of their homemade cider. Tunnels of cider. Yeah. But we were warned not to drink that on account of the Jerry's putting poison in it. Whether they ever did or not, I didn't take a chance. I think it was only laxative that was put in it, actually. <laughs> uh, uh, bromide. <laughs> I lost one fellow, actually. He was only wounded. He was lucky he got away with it. He leapt over the hedge to drop his trousers and ease himself. And he actually went on an S-mine mm. as he went over the hedge. Jump, jump and that was a, it was cider that did that to him. I think Carn was the worst place for the hold-up of the of Overlord. It should have been. They hoped to take it you know, at the end of day one, and it was six weeks after that before Carn was captured. And it was a complete ruin. Two hours ago, I was looking at Caen Cathedral, standing up grey and soft in the light of the sun. We were flying into France at 200 miles an hour to attack an important concentration of German tanks of the 21st Panzer Division gathered in the path of the Allied armies advancing beneath us. It was the first daylight operation of the British tactical bombers since D-Day, and if successful, might have important effects on the progress of the land battle. Sorrow I have on it, because of the people I lost, yeah. the friends I lost, yeah, yeah. that's the main thing. We, lo we lost a lot of, yeah. uh, of friends. We didn't lose many on D-Day, but I lost the best part of uh, a section as they were, platoon as they were then. We used to be field companies before we became field squadrons. And I lost those, mainly injured on clearing minefields. It was my 20th birthday, D-Day, and uh, it was rather a noisy party, but uh, it's very memorable. Uh, looking back on it, I, I'm glad I was there, but uh, a hell of a lot of my friends were killed. And, uh, of course, they don't get old and smelly like the rest of us, so I suppose. They hadn't invented counselling for stress in no. the, to our generation. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> all, all this rubbish that you hear now of uh, people... They trained us extremely hard, we, we, in actual we, we, fact, we, we and we you've trained. got past the idea yeah, of we, yeah. worrying. The only, the only stupid thing I can think of now on this going into France that one of my corporals, Morgan Jones, he was 
working on the beach obstacles. That was his job, and he knew he had to do it. But I said, you'll still need some small arms fire with it. There'll be a Bren with you. So make sure both your pouches are full of Bren magazines. And just before we actually started to climb down off the side of the ship, I said, Chip, I said to Morgan, I hope, Morgan, you've got your Bren mags. He said, this pouch is full. Sir. I'll tell you, this pouch is full. I said, what's in the other? He said, I brought a ferret in case there's some bloody rabbits. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think the thing that I remember most, and it's, it's nothing to do with the actual war, but when I was wounded, I was taken back on this strategy that I mentioned earlier. There we were, still under sort of shell fire and mortar fire in this casualty clearing station, and uh, a woman's voice said, would you like a cup of tea? And there was a QA with her tin hat on, and she looked uh, like a film star, and I must say I burst into tears after three days in, or four days in action to find uh, women uh, so close to the battle. Well, we landed we with thing, packs things with. called 24-hour oh. ration packs, which had uh, uh, to start with, cool. and, and they, they had uh, sort of... Uh, all I can call is dehydrated porridge and, yes. and, and pemmican stuff. And if you put those in a mess tin with a bit of water and got a bit of heat from your Tommy cooker, which was a little meter burner thing, and you stirred long enough, you could make a sort of stew. And um, it was a bit like polyfiller. And had you didn't eat the porridge effect. as a biscuit. <laughs> I ate the, well, the concentrated porridge as a biscuit, and I had a hell of a night I was... <laughs> It's blown up to about four times normal size. <laughs> but then we'd had these, we'd then, had to practice with these uh, yeah. assault packs or the 40 or 24 hour pack. We were meant to practice these on all the exercises coming down from Scotland when we came south. And of course, every time you went past the transport cafe, you had a meal in the transport cafe or whatever, you get in the cafe. So we didn't use these things. We never used it down there. But then after. Compo the, rations came the, in. The then. compo came. Very in. good. One thing that was bit annoying was that in the compo box, which was rations for, what was it, 14, 14. men for one day, yeah. or for one man for 14 days, and inside it was a tin, a brown tin, which had the goodies in it, sweets, cigarettes, uh, bog paper, and various other things. And a large proportion of the ones that we got in our first issue somebody had prized them open, and instead of the goodies tin, there was a London Brick Company brick. Yeah. The, the uh, dockers in UK had pitched Didn't do too badly on that, because the APAC had steak and kidney pie and tinned peaches. The B pack had McConaughey stew and steamed treacle pudding. Very good. They, they weren't wonderful, yeah. but the further you got away from the REOC and the base at the back with the RASC, was the less and less A and B packs you got. You finished up with an F pack, which had herrings and tomato sauce, yeah. uh, <laughs> sardines. Uh, so Filches. Yeah, we did go down quite a bit on those. But they, they were a very, very good pack. There's no doubt about that. Well, Surprising like, number of pigs that actually died of shell fire. Yeah. yeah. Shot um, straight between the eyes. We were lucky we'd been in the Navy because we used to just pull up alongside oh, the ship and... Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah. Are you short yeah. of anything? Yes. I've been back once or twice. I was stationed in Germany and used to go uh, down from Germany. Uh, down, visited my old uh, 
battlegrounds. Uh, they're a bit of an anticlimax in a way yeah. because everything was healed and grown over and houses have been knocked down or were knocked down because of shell fire disappeared. I didn't recognise a thing when I went back five years ago. I went up the beach and I said, well, we eventually got into St. Com de Frain. That was a little village at the back. We had to lay the track door so the first lateral track would go. And I couldn't recognise a damn thing. The only thing I could recognise was the pillbox at Le Hamel, at the end of Le Hamel Beach. There were many Manxmen serving with the Allies. They all played a part in the beginning of the end of the war in Europe and in the fighting into Germany. Some returned home to tell us about it. Others stayed. Today, we remember all of them. That was Roger Watterson presenting Sunday Opinion on, in June 1994, 50 years after the Normandy landings of D-Day in 1944. You heard there from Henry Kelly, Henry Qualtro, Terry Skelly, Norman Moss, Bill Harrison, Ian Duggan and Bill Lister, all veterans of the conflict from the Isle of Man. After the one o'clock news, we'll fast forward to this week's 75th anniversary commemorations. The island's only remaining Normandy veteran is 99-year-old Hector Duff, who survived the landings as well as campaigns in Italy and North Africa. He's the last of a generation who, in his own words, saw things that no pen in the world could write. Mr Duff, who has a military medal and British Empire medal, is also an ex-policeman. He appeared on Perspective's Tales from the Beat, of course, not many weeks ago. We'll hear from him again after the one o'clock news, as well as some of the events from across the water this week as the UK remembered. The Nation Station, Master Mai, and welcome back to Perspective on Manx Radio. Before the one o'clock news, we heard extracts from a Sunday opinion programme from June 1994, where Roger Watterson spoke to some Manx veterans, marking the 50th anniversary of the D-Day landings on the Normandy beaches in 1944. In this half of the programme, we'll look back on a week of commemorations 75 years since that date. In the UK this week, a national commemorative event held on South Sea Common in Portsmouth, attended by D-Day veterans and current serving personnel. Her Majesty the Queen, His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales and the UK Prime Minister watched on. There were also 15 world leaders gathered there to honour those who fought in the Normandy landings. Incidentally, it's the first time the UK's hosted that many leaders outside a formal summit since the 2012 Olympics. Perhaps the most high profile of those guests was Donald Trump. The final day of the US President's state visit to the UK coincided with the vast remembrance ceremonies being held in the south of England. Time now to hear from the Queen and her address to Mr Trump upon his arrival. Mr President, I'm delighted to welcome you and Mrs Trump to Buckingham Palace this evening. Just 12 months after our first meeting at Windsor, Visits by American presidents always remind us of the close and long-standing friendship between the United Kingdom and the United States. And I'm so glad that we have another opportunity to demonstrate the immense importance that both our countries attach to our relationship. In the coming days, you will see some of our most treasured historical buildings speak to the business leaders whose expertise and innovation drive our economies, and meet members of our armed services, past and present. 
You will also travel to Portsmouth and Normandy to commemorate the 75th anniversary of D-Day. On that day, and on many occasions since, the armed forces of both our countries fought side by side to defend our cherished values of liberty and democracy. Mr. President, in your State of the Union address this year, you paid tribute to some of the American heroes who risked their lives. And we owe an immeasurable, inimmeasurable debt to the British, American, and Allied soldiers who began the liberation of Europe on the 6th of June, 1944. I paid my first state visit to your country at the invitation of President Eisenhower. As Supreme Allied Commander, he had ultimate responsibility for the execution of the Normandy landings. In his headquarters in St. James's Square, not far from Buckingham Palace, British and American officers worked closely together to plan the freedom of a continent. And it would be no exaggeration to say that millions of lives depended on their common endeavor. As we face the new challenges of the 21st century, the anniversary of D-Day reminds us of all that our countries have achieved together. After the shared sacrifices of the Second World War, Britain and the United States worked with other allies to build an assembly of international institutions to ensure that the horrors of conflict would never be repeated. While the world has changed, we are forever mindful of the original purpose of these structures, nations working together to safeguard a hard-won peace. Of course, it is not only our security which unites us, but our strong cultural links and shared heritage. Every year, there are almost four million visits by Americans to the United Kingdom, with a great number claiming British descent. And with your own Scottish ancestry, Mr. President, you too have a particular connection to this country. We are also bound by the strength and breadth of our economic ties as the largest investors in each other's economies. British companies in the United States employ over one million Americans, and the same is true vice versa. Mr. President, as we look to the future, I'm confident that our common values and shared interests will continue to unite us. Tonight, we celebrate an alliance that has helped to ensure the safety and prosperity of both our peoples for decades, and which I believe will endure for many years to come. Ladies and gentlemen, I invite you all to rise and drink a toast to President and Mrs. Trump, to the continued friendship between our two nations, and to the health, prosperity, and happiness of the people of the United States.
That was Her Majesty the Queen's address to US President Donald Trump there at the beginning of his state visit to the UK. So Wednesday saw 15 world leaders gather in Portsmouth to honour those who fought in the Normandy landings. Ahead of the ceremonies that morning, Sky's Sarah Jane Mee spoke to Rear Admiral Jin Hyam and Commander Matt Stratton of the Royal Navy about what was in store that day. Well, let's get more now uh, on the day's events uh, with Commander Matt Stratton and Admiral Jim Hyam. Good morning to you both. Um, Admiral, I'll start with you first. You've been involved in um, the commemorations today. Give us an idea of what's in store. Well, I think it should be a really exciting day. There's a there's a huge uh, event being planned, uh, the national commemoration event on the stage behind us, uh, and a a real opportunity for us to... um, to just uh, wonder at the veterans, uh, what they and their colleagues achieved on the day. Uh, and obviously some, some military uh, glamour to follow that with a fly past, uh, which will be pretty spectacular, but not as spectacular, obviously, as the sail past uh, by the Royal Navy <laughs> later on this evening. Um, and, uh, and just a real opportunity to wonder uh, and admire what, what they did 75 years ago. Mm. It is all about the veterans, isn't it, Commander Matt Stratton, in terms of we have a lot of dignitaries today, the Queen, Donald Trump, the Prime Minister, but the focus really is on the 300-plus veterans that will be here today. Absolutely. Today is all about them, and I think that's a, a real testament to how everyone feels about the veterans and D-Day, that so many people are coming to celebrate and recognise their heroism uh, during the period, during the Second It's about the veterans, it's also about their families because so many of them are not with us today and you both have personal connections with World War II, uh, you know, relatives that inspired you uh, to join the Navy. Uh, Commander Stratton, tell us about your grandfather. Uh, So my grandfather was uh, Corporal Arthur Weston. Uh, He was in the Queen's Royal Regiment uh, and he fought all all the way through the Second World War, actually, through Africa, through Italy, and then came back to the UK before landing on Gold Beach on D-Day plus one. And and you've got his medals with you today and some photographs we can have a look at. Perhaps if I I hold the medals for you, so... Oh, there you go, you can do that. You're better at holding medals than I am. (laughs) Uh, So these are his medals uh, from the Second World War. As I say, he fought through Africa, through Italy and through uh, France, through to Germany, so his campaign stars, and also some photos of him. This is my grandfather in uh, Egypt uh, before D-Day, and this is him in 1940, getting married in the middle of the war. Did he tell you many stories about the war and what happened? He didn't tell many detailed stories. Uh, He he told lots about his motorcycle. He was a dispatch rider, and how many times his motorcycle was destroyed and fixed, and he (laughs) carried on with that through the war. And he also talked about when he was fighting in Bayeux after landing in France, uh, when uh, his platoon were in a hedge and they had glowworms on their head and they didn't understand why they were coming under fire and it was only when they realised that they had glowworms on their head uh, sorted that out and you know, made it thankfully to the end of the war and lived on after that. Well, Admiral Hyam, that's what it's about, isn't it? Telling those stories and a lot of the veterans don't want to concentrate on the horror of that day and the coming months in Europe but they remember the good times and it's those kind of stories that they want to share. And, and they are they are just inspiring company. Um, we, we sometimes at events like this uh, send our young sailors off and, uh, and ask them to, to go and have a chat with the, the veterans and sometimes they seem a, a little reticent. Mm-hmm. And, but once they meet these people, once they hear the stories, the, the humbling stories of exactly what they achieved and did on the day and the way in which they're so understated yeah. about them, I, I've never seen anybody uh, be immune from the effect yeah. of, uh, of meeting them.
That was Sky's Sarah Jane Mee there speaking to Rear Admiral Jim Hyam and Commander Matt Stratton of the Royal Navy ahead of the D-Day commemorations in Portsmouth on Wednesday. The programme included period testimony, performance and military display, all accompanied by a tri-service orchestra and choir to celebrate international alliances past, present and future. The story was told across two performance stages. Starting at the fall of continental Europe and working chronologically, the event relayed how Britain, the United States and their allies came together to launch the most ambitious amphibious invasion plan ever conceived. As part of the running order for the day, the Royal British Legion's specially chartered ship, the NV Boudicca, set sail from Portsmouth with around 300 veterans to Normandy. Veteran Norman Williams spoke to Sky's Katie Spencer on board the ship. I don't know how it could be improved, put it that way. It's been magnificent. Words fail me. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a one-off which won't happen again frequently, I'm sure. The next one will probably be 100 years. <laughs> I mean, how hard has it been for all of, all of you lot to, to be recreating this journey as well? It hasn't, it hasn't been hard. I mean, physical aspects might be a bit tough, but you forget them when yeah. you're on the cruise, you know. <laughs> what, does it bring back memories? Does it, does it oh, yes, make it you does. think yes, about what was does. happening? I mean, yeah. talk us through what you were doing 75 years ago then. Uh, do you want it when we landed? In when the, you landed? We landed in the water about several days after D-Day. Still in the water we landed. We went to a field with a, the... Beach master summoning us on like mad, you know. Got to this field, I slept in a ditch the first night. It was June, very, very hot. The next day, we moved to another field, which was in a valley, and the padre came to address us, and I, he came to bless us. But actually, the next day, I thought he'd come to say goodbye by what happened next day. <laughs> what happened the next day? Next day, the whole squadron moved in single file, one behind the other, through this valley and when we got to a crossroad there was an 88 millimeter gun up on the hills with its sights already trained fixed sights on where he knew we'd stop and he went bang and the first vehicle was crippled bang and the next but one vehicle was crippled so we all tried to reverse and it was a shambles <laughs> that's how scared it must have been terrifying you were all so young but as no, well no. I mean, did you think about these I, things no actually that's one of the things that doesn't operate, being young, you know, hey, you know, sort of early 30, like, you know. Yeah. We reversed out, we, we fired smoke to conceal us, and then thereafter we went as, as single troops instead of in a pile of us, four of us, you know, and it was much better then. We also took the turrets off the Dame Armoured cars because what, what they were doing, they could see our turrets above the bocage which was the hedges, you know. So they knew we were coming before we even knew they were there. So they were waiting. So the next day we took them and then we called them sods, sawn-off Daimlers. <laughs> we can get away with that one yes, then at this time right. of night. Oh, yeah, that's polite language, yeah. I mean, will tomorrow be very special for you to, to think about those that weren't as fortunate? Oh, I do, yes, back? I do. You do frequently, really, in off moments, you'd, your mind yeah. goes back to these things, you I mean, know. We, we've seen these. It's been very joyous sort of coming away yeah. from port, but, but also, is it in the back of your mind, the people that... that oh, you remember them, yes, you do. You do remember them, yes, yeah. yeah. You know, it's a young lives gone sort of thing. I mean, I was 19... And my officer, when I first went in, was only 18. 
the major was only 25. We were entirely youngsters. And after the war, I thought about this and I suddenly realised why. And it was because when you're young, you're reckless, you thought, you don't think the same, you've got no responsibilities and you do these things. And that's why they selected us, I think, you know, and I still think that now today. That was Normandy veteran Norman Williams speaking to Sky's Katie Spencer on board the Boudicca. In France, a 97-year-old DD veteran, D-Day veteran, was among around 280 people who parachuted into Normandy on Wednesday. Tom Rice jumped into roughly the same area he came down upon during the invasion in 1944. Back in the UK, Prime Minister Theresa May addressed the gathered crowds and read a letter written by Captain Norman Skinner of the Royal Army. My darling, this is a very difficult letter for me to write. As you know, something may happen at any moment, and I cannot tell when you will receive this. I had hoped to be able to see you during last weekend, but it was impossible to get away, and all the things I intended to say must be written. I'm sure that anyone with imagination must dislike the thought of what's coming, but my fears will be more of being afraid than of what can happen to me. You and I have had some lovely years, which now seem to have passed at lightning speed. My thoughts at this moment, in this lovely Saturday afternoon, are with you all now. I can imagine you in the garden, having tea with Janie and Anne, getting ready to put them to bed. Although I would give anything to be back with you, I have not yet had any wish at all to back down from the job we have to do. There is so much that I would like to be able to tell you, nearly all of which you've heard many, many times. But just to say, that I mean it even more today. I'm sure that I will be with you again soon and for good. Please give my fondest love to my Anne and my Jamie. God bless and keep you all safe for me. That was Theresa May there speaking as she addressed the gathered crowds in Portsmouth on Wednesday, reading a letter written by Captain Norman Skinner of the Royal Army. Shortly afterwards, Her Majesty the Queen paid tribute to the resilient wartime generation whilst she reflected on the 60th anniversary 15 years ago as well as what her father broadcast to the nation at the time. Your Excellencies, ladies and gentlemen, when I attended the commemoration of the 60th anniversary of the D-Day landings. Some thought it might be the last such event. But the wartime generation, my generation, is resilient and I'm delighted to be with you in Portsmouth today. 75 years ago, hundreds of thousands of young soldiers sailors and airmen left these shores in the cause of freedom. In a broadcast to the nation at that time, my father, King George VI said, 
What is demanded from us all is something more than courage and endurance. We need a revival of spirit, a new unconquerable resolve. That is exactly what those brave men brought to the battle, as the fate of the world depended on their success. Many of them would never return, and the hero heroism, courage, and sacrifice of those who lost their lives will never be forgotten. It is with humility and pleasure on behalf of the entire country, indeed the whole free world, that I say to you all, thank you. Her Majesty the Queen as she addressed the gathered crowds in Portsmouth on Wednesday. A quick ad break now. Don't go away. Afterwards, we'll shift our focus closer to home as we hear from the island's only remaining Normandy veteran who survived the landings as well as campaigns in Italy and North Africa. The Nation Station, Manx Radio. Welcome back to the final part of this week's Perspective on Manx Radio. Thursday marked 75 years since the D-Day landings at Normandy, a service of remembrance to honour those Manxmen who stormed the beaches in France, was held on Douglas's North Quay. The island's only remaining Normandy veteran is 99-year-old Hector Duff, who survived the landings as well as campaigns in Italy and North Africa. He is the last of a generation who, in his own words, saw things that no pen in the world could write. Ahead of that service, Aaron Ibanez went along to his home in Onken. How are you, Hector? Shoes on or off? Shoes on or off? No, you know that. They haven't been walking in the mud, have you? No, no. This is the photo album for commemorations, is it? Yeah. That's one of the sides of the drum on that tank. Gosh. That's a German. All ah, right, so not what obviously you were riding. Yeah. How did the uh, the British tanks compare to them? Oh, no, no comparison. Really? No. Were they just far advanced, were they? Yes, yeah. My name is Hector Duff. I'm a retired uh, policeman and I'm a veteran from the Normandy campaign which is celebrating our little anniversary tomorrow. I always am so satisfied when I put my medals on and all that I'm, I'm praising them. I don't put them on for any self-satisfaction. I put them on for, for, for them. To, for them. They're wonderful what they do. They're now lying, the more, I know, well, uh, thousands of them, lying in peace, really in places all over the world, especially all over France. And I think it's right that we should, we have an obligation to them. And it's right that we should respond to that. And we do, this is the way we respond, we're thanking them. And uh, uh, I I could uh, tell you lots of little incidents, but no, they, they're, they're hurt, hurtful a little bit if you, if you try. There's two things I never very seldom talk about, and that's into action and uh, going into the the um, 
uh, concentration camps. You can't tell you can't uh, tell people about things like that. It's there indelibly inscribed in your mind or brain or wherever. And there's only one person that saved me. That got me home here. That was card up above. The only only person that got me back home. Could you tell us about your what you can recount and from your well, experience? All I can recount, recount and tell you is that really is that there's not a pen in the world that could write what we saw and what we went through. You know, we can tell bits and pieces and things like that, but there's no, not a pen in the world that could display it and just put on paper. It's futile trying to put it on paper. Uh, so it's only what you can tell people of it. How old were you when you took to the beaches in France? 20, 20 years. And at that age, did you anticipate the no. the, the moment of, of history that you were sort no. of embarking it on? I, I, I did. And prior to that moment, I never gave it a thought. And uh, I honestly don't know we were going sailing on and we went about, oh, 20 or 30 miles I've got written down somewhere without being seen an enemy. And I thought, oh, this is all right. But it very soon came to a stop and we were very, very soon set upon by the Germans who were much better equipped, better organised than we were. And uh, we, we, we suffered as a result of that. When, when, you were, when you took to the beach, when you were on, you know, on... On your way en route to Normandy, yeah, and yeah. You, did you look around at the faces? Yes, exactly. And there were all the faces of young lads, young men, younger than I was, 18s and 19s. And uh, they were all as young as could be. We never ever thought about, uh, you never thought about dying. I don't think for one moment I thought, I, thought, I never thought I would come home alive. I never for one moment thought I'd come home alive, but that I did, and uh, we were young. We went into action. He knew that there's only one way you're going to have a bit of peace from being in action, that's if you were being wounded and in hospital and that sort of thing. But uh, no, we went on, and you come to one little hill and you cross that, and you come to another strong point and you cross that and you go on, and and you think about these things like, well, I've, I'm surprised that I've outlived yesterday and that sort of thing. But um, what about the physical side of it? Can you can you remember? Were you were you panting? Were you out of breath? Was it was it something that, or were you completely overwhelmed by the adrenaline and the yeah, the yeah, emotion? Yeah. Yes, you would be. You would be. You would be. And um, we weren't so bad. I was in a tank or an armoured car all the time, so I wasn't running. I always used to feel sorry for the infantry, the poor Blubin infantry, PBI as they're called. I always felt sorry for them. Think about it, two or three of you running along and a gun fired at you, and you know the fellas alongside you falling down, dropping down dead, and you don't know whether you're going to be the next one or not. The same if you're in a tank and two or three tanks of you advancing and you've been fired on, one tank gets hit, 
and you just think, oh my God, is it going to be my going, mine going to be the next? You know, all them sort of thoughts go through your mind until you're actually engaged in with the other chap. You know then, well, if I don't sort of look, put my ideas up and start firing or, or driving or whatever I was doing at the time, that they were going to knock us out. So how many how many days did you spend on the front line, so to speak? Well, on the front line? Well, how many days did you spend at war? Well, I went I went all through war for the whole of the... I was two over two years on the, on the North Africa. And then we invaded Italy, and we were a, a, a month, a six months in Italy. Then we came home, and uh, we landed on D-Day. I landed on D-Day, but at 12 o'clock at noon, the infantry again had been in there before us, and they'd made it, got a path ready for us to get ashore. And uh, then I fought all the way through France, Belgium, Holland, and into Berlin, into Germany, into on the 28th of May, we landed, we were at Ham Hamburg, big city of Hamburg, and it was bombed by a thousand bombers the night before we got there, and when we got there, we couldn't get in because of the, the debris and the roads and that, so we were having to wait for people to come up to clear the roads with bulldozers and that sort of thing. And uh, uh, we were told then, now there's rumours that Hitler was going to surrender or kill himself, we didn't know which. And uh, we were what told, does what does that do for your morale when you hear that? Oh, well, it was it wonderful that, oh, wonderful that. But, uh, I know fellas that were were killed in the last fortnight of the war, fought all the way through the war and then killed in the last fortnight. Terrible shock, shock. We, uh, as I say, we were told we weren't to fire unless we were fired on, and we weren't, and we didn't fire, so we uh, then were put in the military occupation then. And uh, I think I was about three months before I got home after that, and I was stayed in Berlin with, uh, with the, the general as I went and uh, landed on the boat with uh, 75 years tomorrow. He and I went together. I'm going to ask you perhaps a, a question that might be a bit close to the bone and you're more than happy to say no, oh. but it's what what does war do to people? You know, when, when you... There's no winners in war. It's not a winner in war. There may be one or two victors or bits of battles, but you can't say you've won if you lost about 10 or Nine or ten million people, can you? Were there were there any moments when you were, when you were at war where you you there were glimmers of hope, you know, for humanity? Because obviously it's first, it's arguably do, uh, the darkest hour for for humans, the first isn't it? Glimmer of hope I had was when I stood up on my armored car in in the little boat that we were going across in, and I seen the five thousand boats ahead of me. The sea was. Like looking at that wall with all them pictures there. It was just everywhere, everywhere you could look was a boat. 5,000 boats over there and all. The largest armada the world has ever seen. And uh, uh, that was the first time I thought that 
the, uh, the general that was with me, I said, hey, my Jerry can never withstand the pressure that we're going to put on him here. He said, oh, well, we'll have to wait and see. I, th I don't know what his exactly words were, but he is good to say, well, we'll have to wait and see. And we did wait. We had to wait another year before we conquered him. How often did you think of home? How often did you think well, about the Isle of Man? Often, uh, very, very often. When we were in Africa, our letters, letter uh, uh, distribution of mail, writing home, we only had the only had, we had biro. We didn't have biros. We had pencils and pens, fountain pens, which you had to fill with ink. And I used to always, I used to write every time I could get a chance, but you couldn't get much chance, really. Many a time you'd get halfway through a letter and then you'd be called into action and you'd have to go and you'd either have to write again later or put it somewhere safe where you couldn't do it. The same with the mail coming in Af North Africa. We'll get a, ma a letter maybe every six weeks, maybe. I would say that would be very, very frequently if you got one every six weeks. When we got into in Europe, from Nor from Norm on the, the Normandy, mail situation got better. The food got better. Everything got better. But the the mail wasn't wasn't very good. It wasn't very. Uh, but uh, I would say it was certainly better than what we got in 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 Africa, North Africa. With no food in North Africa, only biscuits, hard biscuits, and um, and uh, uh, jam, and we never, we never, then no, no butter and that sort of thing to put on the biscuits because the butter would be all melt and run away. Oh, we very, very, we never had any green vegetables in Africa and things like that. So this uh, food was, but. I'm still here. It didn't do me are, much yeah. harm, has yeah. it? Yeah. Well, how much, how much of an inspiration to you was thoughts of home and the thought of getting back to the Isle of Man, away well, from all, all of yes. this? Well, wonderful. Yes, wonderful. Uh, I don't think I'd have, uh, if it hadn't have been my wife there, I don't think I'd have, I'd have made it. I'd have, I don't know probably what other, what other ended up being, but... Uh, she sort of kept a hold of me, and, and not literally, but she sort of looked after me and one thing or another. And, and we had a wonderful 60 years together, married. And, uh, but now I've been since, uh, um, she's been dead since, since 2000. So I've been 18 years, 20 years on the whole. But I've got very good family. And uh, uh, and numerous friends. I don't know how many people wrote, rang me today and yesterday. Not only me thanking, thanking for what what I'd done on Facebook. <laughs> I didn't know such thing existed. Existed. Yeah, Facebook would have been pretty handy when you're in North oh, Africa, yeah, wouldn't exactly. it? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It would. Yeah. Um, so, so tomorrow then, you, you, with with your commemoration in in mind, um, what what are you hoping to to sort I of communicate hope, to I everyone? Hope, I hope there'll be a, a nice uh, selection of top people there from all sort of walks of life, particularly in Douglas, 
it's maybe awkward for some to get into Douglas from the outer lying places, but I think uh, most people got cars, and I only hope that they will. People will turn up, and uh, and uh, we'll put a few words. We can't. We can't. I could talk for about two or three hours. You can't do that. They wouldn't. They wouldn't they'd never <laughs> so you've been given a script, have you, to read off? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Karamayad Aaron Ibanez there, speaking to the island's only remaining Normandy veteran, Hector Duff. Taken from the Tinwald website, Mr Duff was born in Sulby in 1919 and will celebrate his 100th birthday later this year. He served in the 7th Armoured Division, known as the Desert RATs, from 1940 to 1945. His division was in Normandy on the afternoon of D-Day and they continued through France and into Germany, taking part in the Victory Parade in Berlin. His service continued in Germany after the end of the war, where he was involved in the early work of the Nuremberg Trials. For his war service, he received a citation and was awarded the Military Medal for Bravery. In the New Year's Honours in 2013, he was awarded the British Empire Medal in recognition of his work with the island's schoolchildren. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening. Take care.